All right, we're going to begin. Um, we have a lot of people missing because they're at the retreat, but we shall proceed. All right, so let me begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, we give you praise, we give you thanks for your word that you reveal yourself to us. And as we look at, into it, as we look at it, um, open up our hearts, open up our minds that we may know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we're doing a um, Sunday School series. We're going through all the books of the Bible. Let me just make sure I'm recording myself. Okay. Um, we're going through each of the 66 books, and um, sort of my intent is to excite you to want to read for yourselves, right? So we're just going to spend like a small amount of time to give you a flavor sense of the book. Um, last week, we were supposed to do Gospels and Acts, but then... Uh, I only went through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three books. So I told myself, it's okay. I'm going to allow myself to go at the pace that is necessary. I was supposed to get through this in 10 weeks. I think we're slated to do it in um, 15 weeks. But if we only put them all together, but we separated them with a considerable amount of time. But um, thank you for your patience. The second time around, it'll be like all the way through since I won't have to do any lesson prep. All right, um, or less lesson prep. All right, so let's go to the Gospel of John, written by uh, John, the youngest, uh, the youngest disciple. Um, actually, uh, we don't know the authorship information from the book itself. This is just from church tradition, although it's very well established. Um, John is called the beloved uh, disciple. Um, and the reason why is because uh, six times in the book of John, uh, John will refer to himself not by name, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so uh, we think John is referring to himself sort of in a modest way or in a sideways way. So there's a couple of places where that appears, like at the Lord's table. Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and Peter motions to John, because John is always next to Jesus. Like, John was part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, but John was always next to Jesus' side. He's, he's always um, affectionately by Jesus. And then, if, if you've ever seen uh, Da Vinci's, um, Leonardo Da Vinci's um, the, uh, the Last Supper, right? If you've read the, 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 the Da Vinci Code, the conspiracy uh, theory, John, who is the youngest disciple, therefore the most, uh, I guess, least manly looking, is supposed to be Mary Magdalene, right? Um, because he's like leaning on Jesus. But he's leaning on Jesus because he's the beloved gospel. He's the beloved disciple. Also in the ancient world, they were much less squeamish about man, men touching men. It was, it was, that was a manly thing for men to touch each other. Um, you know, hold hands and, and to hug each other. But in any case, um, so, uh, Peter motions to, to John and it says, he motions to the disciple Jesus loved. And he says, like, ask him who he's talking about. <laughs> um, or, for example, at the cross, um, Jesus, uh, to the disciple whom he, Jesus loved, he gave him, uh, he said, uh, uh, this is now your mother. And he says to uh, his mother, Mary, this is now your son. Um, the Gospel of John, one of the distinctives compared to the uh, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very heavy on discourse. The most distinctive gospel, uh, uh, the most, uh, the gospel that's the most opposite would be Mark. Mark is all action, very little dialogue. John is mostly dialogue, very little action. I've always said that if you're going to make a movie of one of the gospels, you should make it Mark, because there's lots of action. Um, John is lots of discourse and dialogue. 
for example, the feeding of the 5,000, that is in every one of the four Gospels. It's a very significant event, but only John gives us a long, long, you know, like a 60-verse uh, discussion, <laughs> controversy, argument that Jesus has with the crowd afterwards. Um, and the focus of these dialogues is to ask the question, who is Jesus? The Gospel of John is really focused on the identity of Jesus, namely that he is the divine son of God. So you have all these unique stories like the story of Nicodemus, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, which will, which I'm going to preach on next week, the raising of Lazarus, only in the Gospel of John. And all of that is trying to tell us this is, uh, this is the Christ, this is the, um, this is the son of God, um, the second person of the Trinity. Um, whereas the synoptics, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke shows us Jesus' divinity, um, mostly in what he did. So it doesn't come out overtly. Um, like it doesn't punch you in the face so much. Although if you read it well, he's, the Gospels are punching you in the face all the time. <laughs> um, but like, you know Jesus is divine because Jesus forgives sins. He walks on water. He calms the seas. Certainly, um, the Pharisees knew what Jesus was doing. That's why they wanted to kill him and stone him for heresy, for blasphemy. But uh, in John, you have not so much the actions, yes, but also Jesus' self-attestation. So he makes these self-declarations that he is God. He's really high, lofty, amazing statements. Um, he says, for example, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. Right? So Abraham, you know, um, probably 3000 BC, you know, Jesus, you know, is talking about 3,000 years ago, and he's saying, uh, I'm sorry, not 3,000 BC, what am I saying? Um, Abraham, when is Abraham? Abraham would be uh, 2,000 BC, uh, 1,800 BC, in any case, many thousands, uh, many hundreds of years ago, and then Jesus is saying, I was there, right? Um, you have the upper room discourse, so that's really distinctive in John, the Last Supper, when Jesus is uh, having uh, uh, his final meal before his arrest and crucifixion, um, he has this really long discussion about the Holy Spirit, um, about who he is. You find that only in John. So let's just read a passage of John to show you an example of this kind of discourse and Jesus' strong self-statements. Uh, Let me read to you John 14, uh, verse 1. Um let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Uh, believe also... I'm sorry. Uh, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. You may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Thomas is always a little bit skeptical, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's a very, that verse 6, very famous verse, but very strong statement. Jesus is not just saying, oh, there is a way, and I'm going to show you the way to God. He says, I am the way. Right? He doesn't say, I'm here to tell you the truth, teach you the truth. He says, I'm the truth. I'm not just here to show you the way, uh, show you how to have life, but I am life. 
right? You cannot have life unless you're um, in me, uh, connected to me. So any questions on the Gospel of John? I told myself I'm going to make it very short, which I feel like I did. Um, any questions on John? All right, I'm eager to get to the epistles because that it'll be it'll be fun. All right, um, so let's get to the Book of Acts. This is actually Volume Two of <coughs> Luke's Gospel. <coughs> um, they were. It's originally, if you look, if you um, look at the uh, ancient manuscripts, it's a, a single book, a single bound book. Uh, Luke meant it not as um, two books, but as a single book, or maybe two volumes of a single book, single work. Luke is telling us the origins of Christianity. So he's not just telling us the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but he's saying the story of the early church is a vital part of how Christianity began. And you can't understand the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of of, uh, what Jesus is doing, unless you understand what's going on in the early church. And the early church is not just, oh, Jesus commissioned his disciples, you know, go tell everybody about me and start this organization called the church. But the church has to cross over significant cultural ethnic barriers in order to fulfill Jesus' mandate. And it's a very significant part of the story. This is why it's in the Bible, right? And this is why when, at the end of Acts, when essentially the entire Mediterranean world has been reached, the story ends. This is why we don't need the further sagas of the gospel going to, you know, India or, or, or all the far reaches of the, of the earth. Um, so the distinctive of the Gospel of Luke, as I said last week, is its emphasis on the Gospel being for outsiders. Um, and in Acts, this is fulfilled in the Gospel going out to Gentiles. So let's just read some of Acts. Let me read to you first the, um, the beginning of Acts. This is when Jesus ascends up to heaven. He gives his commission to, um, he sort of repeats the Great Commission. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it sort of um, emanates, it sort of uh, um, uh, extends outward, right, from starting in Jerusalem and then going out to the ends of the earth. Uh, let me just say a really quick note. It's interesting that the early church began in Jerusalem. I think it's really significant for um, apologetics or the defense of Christianity because Jerusalem is is the site where Jesus was crucified. I think it's really important to think about. It's not like his disciples regrouped, <laughs> went hundreds or thousands of miles away, and then told this fantastical story about what happened and uh, and got people to believe. But the, the, the early church movement began in Jerusalem where he was brutally uh, arrested and murdered on the cross. And how do you explain the early church beginning in Jerusalem unless something incredible happened that could reverse the verdict of the cross? Um, but it goes to the ends of the earth. So let's read um, a significant passage, which is Acts chapter 10. This is um, the gospel the gospel reaching to the Gentiles, and it, it continually um, experiences resistance and um, barriers. Um, the Spirit has to constantly convince the disciples to go out <laughs> and extend themselves to the Gentiles, even though the Scriptures make it abundantly clear that um, 
you know, as as the the, the knowledge of the glory of God uh, will cover the earth as the waters uh, cover the sea. So it was always intended that um, God's the kingdom of God would stretch to the ends of the earth. Um, there's that famous story in uh, Daniel when uh, Daniel sees this uh, statue of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right, and it has multiple layers: gold, silver, and bronze, and you know, um, uh, earth and clay. And then this little rock comes down, right, that nobody cut, and then it smashes into, it grows and grows, and it smashes into the statue. So it's smashing the kingdoms of the world. And what happens to the rock? It grows and grows and grows until it fills the whole earth. It was always supposed to be like that. So, for example, um, where am I in my notes? Um, so, for example... I don't remember I wrote that. Oh, okay. So, for example, um, Israel was supposed to be called a light to the nations. Uh, the temple was called a house of prayer for all nations. So, it was always intended to go out, but it took a lot of um, convincing. Um, and the reason is because Jews and Gentiles, they, they did not get along, to put it lightly. They were extremely at odds and they hated each other. So let me just give you a historical example, because it's really hard for us to understand ethnic, racial hatred and strife here in the United States, because we're living after, um, after you know, Martin Luther King Jr., <laughs> um, after uh, the civil rights legislation, and for us, like, it's the most horrific thought that someone could be racist. But racism was extremely prevalent, accepted, and normal in the ancient world. And uh, let me just give you a, a historical example. For example, in the city of Alexandria, which is one of the largest cities in the ancient world, um, population about half a million, um, in 66 AD there was, uh, and this, there were multiple such instances, but there was a race riot. Um, 25% of the population in Alexandria were Jews and uh, part of the Jewish diaspora, and there was some kind of dispute or fight. There's some sort of insult that um, the Jewish people committed against um, the Roman, uh, the Roman government, the Roman emperor, because the Jews had all of these um, moral restrictions about, you know, uh, participating in civic religion. So what happened was, for multiple, multiple re- weeks, there was race riots, where basically there were gangs roving around looking for the other side to kill, and it was estimated fifty thousand people died in a period of several weeks. So I want you to think about that. 10% of the population was killed in these race riots. Um, this happened all the time. There was incredible acrimony, hatred, distrust, misunderstanding, okay? So this is the, um, this is the amazing story of Acts, how the gospel went to the Gentiles, the gospel which started in, um, in Israel. So let me read to you Acts 10. The next day, as they were on their journey. So who's they? This is Cornelius. Who's Cornelius? Cornelius is a Roman soldier, right? He has this vision that God is going to send him, you know, a messenger from God. So he sends the servants to Peter, right? They were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So that's about lunch, noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. So he's very hungry, okay? So, Matt, so you have to, that's something to consider for the vision. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So these are all the animals that are forbidden for Orthodox devout Jews to eat. These are not kosher, kosher foods. And there a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Eat, the, eat these animals. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So Peter's answer is a very good answer. Lord, I, I'm an I'm a Orthodox Jew. I have never eaten anything uh, that isn't quote, kosher. How can you ask me to eat these things? And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So he wakes up from his vision. He's wondering what is going on. And then Cornelius' servants come and tell him the whole story and say, would you come and talk with Cornelius? And then this is finally Peter's um, conclusion. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Right. So Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He tells Cornelius um, about Jesus, the Messiah, Cornelius, and his whole household believe. They're baptized. Peter's just amazed. He's amazed, first of all, that he's in the home of a Roman soldier, which is the hated enemy of Israel, the oppressors of his people. It's really, again, hard for us to imagine. Um, I'm trying to think of you know a proper historical analogy, but um, it, it's, it's really incredible for him to say that salvation is for the Romans, is for the Gentiles. So, um, so you have all throughout uh, the, book, the book of Acts, um, the gospel stretching to Gentile believers. Um, I'll get to you. And uh, one of the main controversies in the book of Acts is circumcision. By the way, um, well, let me just tell you a little bit about circumcision. So circumcision was very important identity mark for Jews because um, it, it set them apart. Uh, you can read about this in the Torah. This was intended to set God's people distinct from the, out, the uh, outside pagan world. And uh, there was actually a lot of pressure for Jews to reverse circumcision. Because, so let me explain to you, right? In the Greco-Roman culture, um, it, was a, it was a culture where men went to bathhouses all the time, like public baths. You, you didn't take a bath at home so much as you took a bath in a public in a public place, right? So, you know, all the men in a separate room, all the women in a separate room, you take baths together. So you're just taking a bath together. And for Jews, it was a really embarrassing, terrible experience because then suddenly everyone knows, oh, you're a Jew, right? And you, like, disfigured yourself. So it was actually a procedure where you can reverse circumcision. That that Jews asked me about it later. (laughs) Um, so so, So circumcision became a really important thing to hold on to it. I'm a Jew. I'm faithful to God. I'm faithful to the Lord. And so when um, the Gentiles came into the church, Jewish believers says, well, you have to be circumcised. But there was this huge debate. Does that have to happen? And ultimately, um, the case is no. And let me just say one more thing, which is it shows you the integrity of the historical accounts because there was a massive, massive controversy about circumcision If that was the case, and if the whole story is made up or the Gospels are made up, then Jesus would have said something. Jesus, somewhere in the Gospels, there would have been a line. Jesus said, and and circumcision is fulfilled, it is now obsolete. Jesus says nothing about circumcision because it it, it has no relevant issue 
when he was doing ministry to the Jews. It's only a massive controversy when it comes to gospel to the Gentiles. And so Jesus is silent. And so I think that's a, a really good, again, apologetic evidence that um, the gospel accounts are truly authentic and historical. Um, you had a question. Yeah. It seems like a change to the law. Yeah. And then another thing is this whole thing about circumcision, right? That yeah. was explicit in the law. Yeah. But then uh, allowing, you know, Gentile not to have circumcision is yeah. a change in the law. Yeah. So how, how is that consistent? And the second question is, isn't that passage more about saying that God should make Gentiles clean as opposed to changing the dietary laws? Yes. So um, let me answer first by saying it's very clear in, in the Gospels account about f- kosher laws. So Jesus was having a debate with the Pharisees about um, unclean foods, right? And so they added all kinds of extra, um, reg- like they said, if, if, if certain foods are unclean, like you can't eat pork, it makes a lot of sense because pigs are kind of dirty animals. So it's a symbolic measure to make yourself clean when you when you come into the presence of God. But then the uh, the Pharisees added all kinds of extra rules because the priests would clean their hands and do all kinds of washings when they serve in the temple. So then the Pharisees said, well, before you eat, you should wash your hands and do all these things as well. And the disciples weren't. They were they're like they're like walking around in the dirt and then with their dirty hands, you, they're eating food. See, it, it happens, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so Jesus clearly says in Mark chapter 7, and Jesus declared all foods clean. Because he was saying, it's not what comes inside of you that makes your heart clean, but it's what comes out of the heart, right? So there's, so the, so there's Jesus' clear command, clear teaching. The other, the, 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 but the larger point I would like to make is that a lot of the old, uh, we divide the Old Testament law into categories, right? There's the moral law. The moral law is true for all time. It transcends all cultures, all situations. Do not murder, do not lie, right? And then you have ceremonial laws, like all the laws when it comes to um, offering sacrifices. And then you have um, uh, the civil laws, right? Like uh, penalties for uh, uh, crimes, you know, uh, what do you do with your debt and so forth. And so the civil laws relate to the nation of Israel. We don't have the nation of Israel, and so they don't apply to us. And we have the ceremonial laws. And the ceremonial laws were always intended to be symbolic about our relationship to God, right? And so we're supposed to wash... The, the priests were supposed to wash themselves when they come inside the temple because it's a sign that, um, that they're not fit to go in to, before the presence of God unless they're clean, unless they're cleansed. But now we know that the, the way to God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we don't, all, all of those symbolic measures are now no longer necessary because now we have access to God through Christ. Does that? Yeah. Forevermore. Yeah. Passover. Forevermore, yes. Forevermore. Yes. Um, circumcision is also one. And um, don't eat pig, for example. Yes. And it's not like, a, you know, don't, it says don't ever do this. Yeah. So how, how is that when God explicitly says, you know, forevermore, only until Jesus comes and says, <laughs> Right. I... I don't have a good answer for that. I, I, I haven't put sufficient thought into thinking about the language of forevermore. You're right. Because um, it does say, you know, forevermore. Um, so then why, wh- wh- 
it, it doesn't even seem to suggest that there's some sort of horizon, time horizon, right? I don't know. I have to think about it. But I will say that all the ceremonial clean laws, they were always intended to be symbols to help us to understand and prepare us for the coming of Jesus. Now that we have Jesus, its usefulness has been fulfilled. But what do we do with the forevermore language? Let me get back to you on that. I'm going to put some thought into that. All right. Um, okay, so let's talk about Acts. Um, in Acts, you have the central importance of Paul's conversion. Uh, in fact, Paul's conversion is told three times. Um, it's told first, like as a historical account, you know, Paul was on the road to Damascus. And then it's told two more times where Paul is sharing about his experiences. Anytime something is repeated over and over and over again, what does that mean? What does that mean, Hannah, if you repeat something over and over and over again? Yes, it's super important. Yes. If your mom repeats herself over and over again, it's super important, right? So this is super important. Why is Paul's conversion so important to the story of Acts? Because when Paul is converted, God specifically says, I'm, I'm calling you to be my apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is the bridge. Paul is the unique um, crossing over point because you have to think about it, right? All of Jesus spent his whole time in Israel. He rarely went out. He, he did like quick little excursions and then he would cut through Samaria once in a while. But for the most part, he was with the Jews. His 12 disciples were Galileans. Let me tell you about the Galileans. They are provincial, rural Jews, okay? They're not cosmopolitan. You know, they, they don't know the worldly ways. So how did the gospel reach the wide world? Paul was the bridge. So God calls Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles. That's why it's emphasized, told again and again and again, because it's, it's telling us God wanted the gospel to come to the Gentiles. All right, let me say one more thing about Acts before we move on, about the issue of precedence. I think this is a really interesting and fun issue. There's a big debate among believers today how much of Acts is a model for us today. In other words, when we read the book of Acts, should we, should our church be like the book of Acts? And when I say that, we see all kinds of miracles. We see miraculous healings. We see people rising from the dead. We see uh, the gift of tongues. We see people speaking in languages that they didn't know before. So, is that a model for us? And if we don't um, exhibit those things, are we not fulfilling our mandate to be a true church, right? So there's all kinds of denominations. For example, there's like a full gospel denomination. The word full is telling us everybody else is not full because <laughs> they're not exhibiting all of these um, characteristics and traits. Um, so my answer to that is the book of Acts is not a blueprint for all of Christians, the book of Acts is, is part of redemptive history, right? So let me just write this word down. I don't know if I wrote it down on the... All right, redemptive history. Um, his, uh, the history of salvation, right? So there's all kinds of events in the Bible that are part of God saving his people, for example, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus resurrecting from the dead. These are not repeatable, common, ordinary events that are prescriptive or normative for all believers at all times. 
And the book of Acts is part of redemptive history, right? It's not like, um, so, th- so this is why the book of Acts ends where it ends, because it's the age of the apostles. Um, it's unique, unrepeatable events. So let me just give you a verse, Ephesians 2.20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So think about that language, right? The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So if you have a house, right? This is the house. Um, and then there's a foundation, right? I don't know what a foundation looks like, but... <laughs> <laughs> this is the foundation, right? So let's say you layer on a foundation, and these are the apostles and the prophets. The apostles were uniquely called by Jesus to be his messengers to the world, to tell them about King Jesus. Do you have another, do you have multiple layers of foundations? No. Once you lay down the foundation, you're done, and then you could build the, the structure of the church. And the apostles are, are unique. They are eyewitnesses of, of the Messiah, of his resurrection. Um, they're specially commissioned, and they have the signs and wonders of apostles. So there's all, all these places where um, Peter or one of the, the apostles would say, so that you will know, right, that uh, we are from God. They do these miraculous signs to establish their authority. Um, but now that the apostles have died, that foundation layer is done, we don't have miracles, we don't have the gift of tongues, we don't have miraculous healings, um, spectacular healings where like somebody is dead and then like Eutychius, right? He's like s- sitting there listening to Paul and then he, Paul's just droning on and on. <laughs> and he falls asleep. He, 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 he falls down a window, multiple stories, boom, he's dead. He's raised from the dead, right? If you fall asleep in my sermon and you fall to your death, <laughs> you will remain dead. <laughs> Okay, because I'm not an apostle. Um, the, the, the apostolic age is done, right? Um, any questions about that? So when we read the book of Acts, it's not a blueprint for us. There are elements that are blue, blueprinty, <laughs> but a lot, a, a lot of what the apostles do is, is part of the salvation history, not for us. Yes? So at that time, there was a clear sign of indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. In this modern day. Yeah. Yeah, so that's good. That's a good question. Like, for example, at Pentecost, when all of the, uh, the, 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 all the people there and all the disciples, when they receive the Spirit, what happens, right? First of all, there's a wind that blows, right? Because Jesus specifically says the Spirit's like a wind. And then what happens? There's a flame of fire on top of their heads. There's these visual manifestations, right? Um, the same thing happens, for example, with Cornelius. Um, when Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius, the spirit comes down and there's a, there's a physical manifestation. I forget what exactly it is. Um, or, and then also the Samaritans. When, uh, the Philip the Evangelist goes up to Samaria to preach the gospel, again, the spirit comes down and I believe they speak t- in tongues. They speak different languages, right? So why, why, why were those physical manifestations? Those physical manifestations were necessary to confirm and, and authorize that God's Spirit has indeed come upon the Samaritans. This was an incredible thought. Because again, Samaritans, the Samaritans are not just mixed-breed ethnic, ethnic people. They were traitors to the Jewish race, right? They intermarried, they mixed, they, 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 did this, they did the very sin that was absolutely forbidden. They did intermarriage, and they constantly con- 
cooperated with Greeks and Romans to attack the Jews, right? So the Samaritans, they were like, they were, they were beyond redemption. So for the Samaritans to be saved, God's Spirit comes down and there has to be visual evidence. So then what happens is the apostles go up because they can't believe this account. How can the Samaritans be saved? They, it's like saying the Nazis were saved, right? So they go up to Samaria and then they see the Samaritans have the Spirit. There's some kind of visual manifestation. So do we need vis- visible manifestations today anymore? I would say no. Because the truth is already confirmed. All peoples can be saved, not just the Jews. I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. <laughs> all right. Wow. I told myself I'm going to do all five books. <laughs> all right. So that's the book of Acts. Any questions on the book of Acts? Okay. So let's go to the epistles. Ah, the epistles. This will be a lot of fun. So the epistles come from the Greek word apistole, epistole, which just means letter. You will soon discover in theology and in uh, Christian uh, writing and thinking, we like to use fancy words because epistle just means letter, <laughs> right? So these are letters. Uh, 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament are epistles, except for Gospels and Acts. Uh, some people dispute whether Revelation is a letter. I think it is a letter. Um, so why were there letters, right? This is a very interesting question. The answer is that the apostles were going out. Um, not just the apostles, but there were all kinds of other Christian missionaries like Apollos and so forth, Philip the Evangelist. And the church became widespread over hundreds, over thousands of miles. So how can the apostles communicate with these churches across such wide distances? Letters. Very uh, effective way to communicate. And it's really interesting because you don't have letters in the Old Testament. Um, certain books in the Old Testament contain letters, like Ezra contains letter exchanges between Ezra and uh, the Persian king. Um, like certain prophet books, like Jeremiah 29, he writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. But there are no letters in the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, and yet the New Testament is mostly letters. Why? And I think it just shows you how adaptable the Bible is. I think it's amazing. The Bible is written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's written in multiple different genres, right? Letter writing is one genre. It's different. It's written in multiple different cultures. So you have the book of Esther, for example. It's a very Persian book, right? Because it's totally set in Persia. Um, you have Greek, Persian, uh, Jewish cultures. Um, it means that Christianity, the truth of Christianity is eternal, but the forms are variable. There is no Christian culture so that Christianity can go out and reach the whole world. Compare that to any other world religion. I'm not 100% sure about this. I'm going to say it with a little bit of reserve. But I do not believe there is any other world religion in which all of the foundational authoritative texts are written in multiple languages across multiple cultures. For example, if you take a book, if you take a religion like Islam, right? Islam, the Quran is written all in Arabic. In fact, um, uh, our Muslim friends believe that um, it directly comes from the mouth of God. He spoke Arabic, right? So that if you read the Quran in a translation, you're reading, you're not reading the Word of God. You're not reading, you're reading a corrupted version. You really should be, you really should learn Arabic and you should adopt Arabic customs. So a lot of Muslims all around the world kind of act like Arabs in the, in the Middle East. That's not true for Christianity. We don't have to act Jewish (laughs) or we don't have to act Greek, right? We can be Americans. We can be whoever we are because 
because Christ is king and the cultural form is not, is not mandated. Um, all the letters were written to address specific issues in the church, right? So, so the apostles didn't generally just say, I'm going to write scripture. Um, they were addressing specific problems, some more than others. So, for example, when I look at Romans, Romans is sort of light on the specificity, but all the Corinthians is very heavy on specificity, like all kinds of problems and issues with the church in Corinth. Um, but let me just pause there real quick. Any questions about that? Okay. Um, important point to make, epistles were written after the ministry of Jesus. So um, I want you to think about it like this, right? If you read the gospel accounts, um, yes, they were written after the resurrection of Jesus as well, but they were written sort of like as you were there. So a lot of the disciples, they just look befuddled. <laughs> they look very confused. Um, and it's sort of like a slowly dawning uh, realization. The story folds uh, organically. It constantly says the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying until after he was resurrected. But then the letters were all written after his resurrection. And this is why the epistles have a different flavor than the, than the gospels. The gospels are a little bit veiled. Like who Jesus is, what he came to do, his salvation is all revealed. It's all there, but you have to kind of dig. You have to kind of read carefully and study. Whereas the epistles just tell you, just punch it into your face, right? Um, because the epistles were written after the resurrection. So there's a very interesting place, for example, in Galatians 1.18, where Paul says, after, after he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, Peter's brain is just exploding, right? Because he's a Pharisee. He knows the scriptures. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Messiah was going to be crucified? Wait a minute, wait a minute. The Messiah was going to be resurrected from the dead? The resurrection is not going to happen at the end of... End of Jewish, end of world history with the new heavens and the new earth. So it says he goes to Arabia, right? He probably goes to the outskirts of Israel, uh, along the Arabian desert. He goes there for three years. He's just like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? He's like reading the scriptures, thinking it through, trying to figure out and understand. And so that's what you have. You have the epistles is the long reflection of the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus, right? So you have a lot of discourse, a lot of arguments, a lot of theology, in a way that the Gospels is not as much. Any quick questions there before we move on? Why does it show so much correction? Like um, when one church is doing bad and they write, you know, I'm not saying you're awful people, but you're doing bad things, please correct it. Why is there so much correction? Yes, yes. I, the, the answer is we've been redeemed. But we're not perfect, right? Um, I remember uh, reading the book of, uh, of uh, Numbers, right? The book of Numbers is the story of the wilderness. And if you read the book of Numbers, it's a really frustrating experience because you just feel like it's deja vu all over again. It's a cycle, right? The people grumble, then God sends some kind of disease or affliction, and the people repent, I promise we won't do it again. I promise to trust you. I promise to obey you. And then they do it again, right? And then, or like, uh, uh, if you read, uh, first and second kings, it's that same cycle. Or if you read judges, it's the same cycle. And so there's a hardness in the human heart that just, that just won't believe God is good, that won't trust his kingly sovereignty. And, and so, yeah, there's all kinds of bickering. And also, the problems in the early, you have to understand the early church, the biggest problem in the early church was 
ethnic, cultural, racial strife. That was pretty much the biggest issue. Jews and Gentiles living together in community in the church. Remember, while the early church existed, you had race riots in Alexandria, right? You had accounts and stories of these terrible, terrible events. Um, that's God had affected the, 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 the New Testament believers. And so they, they had really tumultuous problems. It, it makes me feel encouraged because when I see the problems in our church, I think I just have to read First Corinthians. Their problems are so intense. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, the epistles were written and received as the word of God. Um, you know, I'm going to skip that. Um, and I'm going to just say, let me just say this one, let me just say this last point, which is, um, what's really interesting is that as the letters were being written, it was understood that they were the word of God, that this is God speaking. But what's really interesting is that we don't have all the letters. We pro- there were probably four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Um, we only have two. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, listen to this, I wrote to you in my letter... What letter is he talking about? This is 1 Corinthians. There was another letter previously. In 2 Corinthians, he writes about, he says, um, I wrote you a, a tearful letter, a difficult letter that brought, that brought you grief. What letter is that? It's not 1 Corinthians, right, for various reasons. So there were probably four, at least four letters. Two of them are lost. So what, do, what does that mean? It means that God preserved exactly the letters that were necessary for us to live as believers it's also frustrating, especially as historians, we wish the Corinthians also wrote to Paul. They wrote him questions. Um, uh, they wrote challenging him. We wish we could have those letters because it would help to understand the historical situation. Reading the epistles is a lot like listening to only one side of a conversation, right? You know, sometimes Christine is talking to somebody and I can't help but to listen. And it's kind of, I'm trying to piece what's going on. It's sort of like that. So why does God do that? Well, Everything that was necessary, God preserved. Nothing else that was necessary that God withhold from us. All right. Um, let me go over the biography of Paul, and then and then we'll do Romans next time. Um, I'm just going to be way less ambitious each each week, I think. <laughs> so it's going gonna, it's gonna to get to the point where we do one book every week. <laughs> so if God gave us all that we need and didn't withhold anything... That was necessary, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he exp- it, the disciples ask him, you know, wh- what's the purpose of these parables? And Jesus says, the purpose is to mask the truth. Um, so wouldn't it make sense that there's, there's something missing from the truth? <laughs> I think I, um, it's really interesting that um, if you, for example, Augustine, when he converted, um, Augustine was a scholar. He was like the top notch. I mean, he was um, he was like. Um, a, a, a public intellectual in the Roman Empire. And one of his stumbling blocks to coming to faith in Christianity was the absolute simplicity of the New Testament. Because when he read the New Testament, it, would, it, just, it just seemed like fifth grade writing, writing or third grade, third grade writing. He just couldn't believe that, some, that the God could speak like this, right? And uh, I didn't take classical languages, but Christina did in college. And she says if you read like the Aeneid or if you read other um, Greek or Roman poets, 
they really valued complex phrases. So a single sentence can just stretch on for like five minutes because there's all kinds of dependent and, and complex clauses. Because because speaking was an art form in the ancient world. They didn't have TV. They didn't have radio. You just go and listen to people and you pay them just to talk. Um, so the New Testament really seemed... It, it, it was a stumbling block itself for a lot of people. So I think that's part of the answer, which is why parables, why why like this? Because it allows the scoffers to dismiss Christianity and say it's it's obviously not the truth. I don't know if that answers your question or if I went somewhere far off. Okay, I'll keep going. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's talk about Paul. Paul wrote. Paul is interesting. So he start. So we know him as Saul of Tarsus. Why does Paul have, uh, why is there two names? Does anyone know? Saul and Paul. Saul is his, uh, uh, well, one of them is his Roman name, one of them is his Hebrew name. Which one is his Hebrew name? Saul, Saul yes. He's a Benjamite, so he's named after the most famous Benjamite there is, Saul the first king, right? Um, then when he becomes an apostle to the Gentile world, he takes on his Roman name. Um, we're pretty sure he had um, a full three, it's called a trinomen you know, like Gaius Julius Caesar, he had three names, but we only know his first, Paulus. So he just went around as Paul. Um, he wrote 13 of the 22 letters of the New Testament. That's 25% of the New Testament, which makes him the second most prolific New Testament writer. Who is the, who, which writer in the New Testament wrote the most amount of words? Luke, that's right. Um, so Paul, so Paul and Luke combined, that's 50%. Um, Paul is uniquely positioned because he straddled two worlds. He straddled Jewish Palestine and the Greco-Roman world. So there was Paul, who was a Jew. He was trained by a very famous rabbi of the time, Gamaliel. In fact, we have his writings to this day because he was that famous. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel actually makes his presence in the book of Acts because when they're debating, Gamaliel is sort of like the calm, reasonable voice. Let's not get crazy. Let's just, if this thing is not of God, it's going to collapse. We don't have to, we don't have to um, persecute the church. Paul was a, a Pharisee. He was rigorous and devout. Um, the Pharisees at the time uh, memorized, generally memorized the entire Old Testament, 39 books. So it's a really amazing feat, right, to think about that. Paul knew the scriptures inside and out. Uh, let me just read to you Acts 22, verse 3. I am a Jew. This is Paul talking to, um, I believe this is, he's talking to, uh, um, he's arrested in Jerusalem. He's addressing the people of Jerusalem. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So Paul knew Judaism. He, he was, he was, he was, um, what is it? Uniquely qualified, but Paul was also a Roman citizen. He grew up among the Jewish diaspora in the city of Tarsus. In one place in Acts, he says Tarsus was no mean city. We know from uh, historical records, archaeology, Tarsus was an, a major commercial center in Asia Minor. So he basically grew up um, in this really cosmopolitan international city, right, where there were lots of Jews, I mean, lots of Romans, lots of uh, Greeks, um, and in verse, in Acts 22, verse 28, he tells a Roman soldier, I am a citizen by birth. This, this shocks the Roman soldier. It, it puts him aghast, especially the fact that Paul's a Roman citizen by birth. What that tells you is that Paul's family was especially prominent and, um, well established. The Roman citizenship was given very, very sparingly. 
and only for extraordinary heroic acts of service to the Roman Empire. So somewhere along the line, Paul's family, maybe his father or grandfather, did some amazing service, and citizenship was granted to that family, and he was a prominent, established person um, in the Roman Empire. So it makes him uniquely qualified. He's a Pharisee trained by Gamaliel. He's a Roman citizen, right? Gives him a passport to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, this identity is repeated about six times. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Let me read to you Galatians chapter 1. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, right? So basically Paul was a little bit of a, of a prodigy, right? He was like a little bit of a genius. He was well advanced. He knew he he, he was a he was a elite Pharisee, but when and I think this is why partially he was given this task to destroy the early church in Damascus. So he's going there to destroy the early church, and then Paul says, "I'm going to use you for my own purposes." Verse 15. But when he um, who had sent me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, listen to this, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Um, so that's, that's Paul. Um, so the rest of Acts is mostly basically the missionary journeys of Paul, how Paul is able to, um, reach the Gentile world. If you listen, for example, to, um, when Paul goes to Acts, I mean to Athens, he goes to the academy in Athens, right? This is basically, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, all combined into one. And he's presenting the gospel message. He quotes with ease um, pagan poets, Greek poets. So Paul is somebody who was very, who understood the culture, who read wild, widely. He was he was able to communicate something that was so different and alien, which would be um, the gospel message to Greek people who had no familiarity with the Old Testament. Paul was uniquely able and qualified to do that. So, any questions? Um, or comments, and then we will hit Romans and Corinthians. Oh, Corinthians will be so fun because we're going to talk about First Corinthians. We're going to talk about church discipline, which is everyone's favorite subject. <laughs> All right, let me uh, let me offer a word of prayer. Close in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for Scripture. Um, it's so much deeper. It's so many more layers. There's so much riches than we even can imagine. But forgive us, Lord, that we neglect it so often, that we don't put in the effort, that we don't dig, um, we don't think of it as this, this priceless pearl that we, we would be willing to, to trade everything that we have to possess it. Um, so give us that heart, give us that passion, um, help us to know you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.